Jack Travis is famous. Horrorpreneur, what is that? I guess it's somebody that's an expert in scaring people. Jack's not afraid to go to dark places. Well, what's with the paranormal murder inquiry pinned to your hall? I am this close to something great. If we don't know what we're afraid of, then how can we know anything at all? We know ourselves from the decisions we make. Something wonderful. No idea what you're doing. I never wanted this! You have to stop! What are you? They were. Under the Lights Podcast. Welcome to the Under the Lights Podcast. The podcast for up and coming cinematographers, lighting camera operators, and photographers. Learn from the professionals and land the bigger projects. Please welcome your host, Cy Gamble. This week we have a special episode, a double header with first time filmmakers Toby and Fionn Watts. We'll be here to talk about directing their first feature film, the horror thriller called Playhouse. We'll be talking about how you go about financing a feature film, preparing for the shoot and marketing it. So for all those self-shooters that are listening, sat on those juicy scripts, this one is for you and not to be missed. Before we get started, I'd like to just say a quick thank you once again to all our listeners. Thank you for subscribing, thanks for commenting, thanks for sharing. We're only up to episode 5, but we've already got some fantastic listener figures, and that's all down to you. Thank you so much. Just before I introduce the guys, I'm going to say Playhouse will be available in the UK on VOD services from April the 16th, but if you're lucky enough to live in North America, you can access the film now. So with that said, let's introduce Toby and Fionn Watts. Guys, as this is the first time we've done a two-way interview, can you just introduce yourselves so our listeners can get a feel for who's who? I'm Toby, uh, Toby Watts, one half of the Watts Brothers. Always sounds a bit weird saying that. Um, I tend to write um, the movies um, and uh, we both produce and direct together. And I'm Fionn Watts and I'm um, Toby's brother and partner in crime. So as it's become customary on the podcast, I just want to start right back at the beginning. Take us back to what inspired you, what made you become filmmakers? Yeah, so I think that um, it really originated um, as young children um, that our father, well, and our mother actually, recorded various films and TV series um, on VHS. And, um, you know, like a lot of filmmakers, these were kind of lying, lying around in the house and we spent uh, a lot of our time uh, really just watching um, films and sort of blockbuster movies and Spielberg and James Cameron movies and Twin Peaks and David Lynch and David Cronenberg and sci-fi movies, whatever was lying around. We, we saw these when we were well too young, probably, you know, to have been properly allowed to watch them in terms of the ratings. <laughs> um, and so that fed our, our imagination a lot. And I think that because our father's a screenwriter and um, a write, writes in general books, plays, and um, some screenplays, and our mother's an actress. Um, it was sort of there in the blood somewhere. So we would talk about storytelling and ideas, and um, the arts felt like a very natural world um, to be in. And um, that eventually evolved into a conscious decision to go and study film. 
um, and actually go out and start making short films uh, ourselves. So I, I led the way initially, um, making some films, and Toby was acting in them, and we were playing around. And then I went and studied uh, film and media studies in Stirling, at Stirling University, which was mainly an academic study of film. And um, not too long after that, I then went and started a company called Fightback Films, and I was just doing freelance sort of video work. Um, but it was very, it was very difficult um, to survive, you know, uh, freelance on your own. I, I only had so much work, um, and Toby was studying science, um, and he decided at a certain point, a few years after I was sort of running this slightly failing uh, video production company, that we should start Farnell's film together, and that we would move to the north of Scotland. Um, and I think it's from that point, um, probably about. You say ten years ago? Yeah, I think it was 2011. Uh, we were both living in the far north of Scotland with our dad, and um, we that we wanted to create a company that would always carry that identity of where we grew up and where we first started making films in our teens. And so, far north um, was was the title that came to us. And uh, we just started getting random jobs, making films for youth clubs and churches and all, all the places any budding videographer or filmmaker knows you get getting paid 50 quid for three weeks work kind of jobs, you know. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, so that's where it started. And really that became our means, um, you know, for quite a while. Um, a good seven years from 2011, we were final film. We became a limited company eventually. Um, we had good months and we had terrible months. Um, and our hearts were never in it. It was always a means to an end doing video production we had a bit of a niche working in schools, so we worked a lot with young people doing workshops and filmmaking competitions and that kind of thing. Um, but our hearts were never fully in that. It was always about feature films for us and the drama and that kind of thing, fiction projects. So eventually, I think we got to a point that thought, we're not getting any younger. Um, are we going to do this? We're just talking about it. You know, we fantasize about being feature filmmakers. Um, and uh, we started working on ideas for years um, until eventually we decided to take the plunge and then Final Film really became the vehicle for our feature film production and, and we kind of slowed down over a period of time and eventually stopped the uh, the corporate videos. I think that's uh, easier said than done for a lot of people but how did you go about obviously winding down the corporate work and, and how did you do that without sacrificing too much of your income? Yeah, I think what the big I think turning point for us was we had one reasonably paid job that involved me going to India to film for a charity. Um, and for us, you know, it meant we had like maybe a month or two where we didn't need to work. And we just said, let's do it. Let's just stop, stop doing video production and not even think beyond what's going to happen. And we started working on the screenplay um, and bringing it together and, and then started going out to investors um for our feature film um and to be honest i don't even know how we survived financially because there was no plan really i think that we you know it took us a long time to get the script right to something that we wanted to film that, that became playhouse as it is now so i think we were developing that somewhat uh, on on the side of doing other things um other video uh, production work but i think once it became about the pre-production and the financing, um, we could, we had a hundred percent focus from that moment on it, and it is hard to to think really how it was we managed to 
make ends meet. I think that we probably had some money saved, um, kept our overheads fairly low. Um, we would pay ourselves a little bit of money out of the budget, but it was a very small portion. And we both, you know, have wives who are earning some money, not, not huge amounts, but enough to sort of cover the bills. Um, but we worked very fast and very efficiently towards the dates that we'd penciled in to make the feature film uh, happen. And I think for us, it was basically all or nothing. We were like, either we're going to do this feature film this year, or we were going to stop anything to do with filmmaking and video production, because if we were dying a death inside, we weren't happy yeah. just making videos. That That's great for people who want to do that. I love that. But for us, we that wasn't what we really set out to do, as Toby already said. So it was just a means to an end. So I think having that like kind of enormous pressure uh, really helped us to get organized. And um, we had no idea whether it would really work. I mean, we I'd studied film producing over many years, trying to learn, going on courses, writing down the steps, um, getting the knowledge in a sense, uh, and then put it into action, uh, got the business plan together with Toby's help. And we had the screenplay and he did mo- you know, most of the writing and all that kind of thing. And then we started making the calls to people who, you know, had some wealth, had some expendable income, might be interested. No idea what was going to happen, but at least we were very organized in a, in a place to confidently go out there. And amazingly, um, even the first few phone calls we had, um, suddenly we found that we were, we almost had a third of the budget. And, uh, when you pick the phone up, how did those calls actually go? Oh, it was, it, I mean, it was, it was kind of terrifying. Um, and kind of surreal. Um, but it actually, I think I did have, there was one rejection quite early on with, um, somebody who I knew quite well, which was quite hard to take. They were almost like annoyed that I phoned them, (laughs) almost offended that I'd phoned them. Um, but I think the psychology around, around it, you know, we, we, we'd learned something, which is you're not asking for money you're presenting an opportunity. And if this person doesn't want to be involved, it's their loss. And every no gets you further to a yes. So I think we just developed a tough skin. And and as soon as that, you know, that initial money started coming and people saying, yeah, I'm going to put in and then it hits the account, you get more and more confident. And eventually you get to a point where you think, okay, this is tipping over now. This is going to happen. Let's start booking people. And so we were booking people even without having the full finance in place. But I think there's, that's what's needed. I think sort of going on faith and just absolute determination to make it happen. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was an incredibly exhilarating process um, daunting and frightening, but it's important not to listen to the fear, just go and do it. And uh, in those situations and when you're making the film, how do your two personalities complement each other? Yeah, I suppose, um, I, I have come from a science background. That was initially what, what I was thought I was going to do with my life is do research. Um, and, uh, yeah, soon realized, you know, halfway through the degree, that wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I was much more interested in the creative stuff. Um, but I still have that background and that experience. So I guess I would be slightly more the numbers kind of person, uh, logical thinking, a bit left brained. Um, and Fionn's more of an intuitive kind of thinker and, uh, expressive in a sense if you know if if you got to see our personalities you'd see quite quickly how we're quite different um so i think we we work together you know in that sense there's a left brain right brain thing going on and of course we have a a bit of that in in each other as well 
Um, but I think one of the main things in working with somebody when you're in a partnership filmmaking um, setup, and this is probably why siblings often go into filmmaking, is there's just this weird intuitive chemistry that you have and you have all this backstory. We've seen all the same films, we've got all the same family references, the same experiences in their lives, and uh, you can draw on that so quickly. And when you're in the heat of you know, being on a set or, or planning your shot list or imagining a story or whatever it is, you, you can't be spending ages justifying why you think something or where you've got that from. You have to be able to react off each other. And I think there's just a natural chemistry that we have that comes from being brothers for so many years that means that we can we can get on. But it did, I mean, what do you think, John? It did take a long time to, to work out how to work well together. Yeah, I think we ironed out some of the difficulties, some of the miscommunications and per- personality differences, the, the things that might be difficult. Um, initially with the corporate video production work that we did. So by the time, because we've done that for quite a few years, by the time we were onto the feature film, um, I think we were working very smoothly. And it was like, you know, yin and yang, a great symbiosis um, of our thinking, of our talents, of our creativity, all working in the right direction. And, um, you know, and I think we're just very blessed, in a sense, very fortunate to have each other as brothers, to have this great connection um together and that's i think the source of our strength i think if if one of us was trying to do this on on their own it would be i'm not sure we would have got to to this point um so i think that is advice i'd have for anybody who's out there wanting to produce their own films and make their own films is even if it's not a sibling but having a partner having a you know a production partner somebody to work with a co-producer yeah um or a writer director is so important because if you're trying to do this on your own it's, it's unbearably tough. And I think you need somebody to fire ideas off with as well and to, in order to keep sharp. So Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's a really lonely world being a freelancer sometimes. But I want to get an understanding of where you pull your inspiration from. Who are, your, who are the people that you look up to? Yeah, I guess, um, I guess it's a lot of different filmmakers that have been inspired by, I mean, I'm sure we could name people like David Lynch, you know, for his... Um, he's just a fantastic filmmaker. It's very surreal, his work, dreamlike and emotionally driven. Um, it's very hard to break down how on earth he goes about constructing his stories a lot of the time, but they just seem to work on an intuitive level. Um, so we love that kind of mystery. We've always loved mysterious kind of, kind of ideas. But we also love James Cameron for his high concept ideas that are very emotionally charged as well. None of his films are purely about spectacle. It's always story first and then spectacle and special effects behind that. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. So those are the kind of films we were growing up on, the sort of Terminator and Aliens and those kinds of ideas. Um, And for some reason, we've always kind of flirted with horror. We've always loved films like Candyman in some of the video nasties from the 80s um and um there's a lot of good modern horrors out as well but um those have often grabbed our attention too yeah and i think also you know there's um some british filmmakers like i remember seeing um dead man's shoes i think fantastic in the film british cinema unit that i did at university and i was absolutely speechless after seeing dead man's shoes because we spent some of our time growing up in bakewell which is quite near Matlock, where that was filmed. And I remember that resonated because I used to know people who were like 
petty drug dealers and vagabonds um, wannabe gangsters. And so that kind of thing resonated with us as well in Ken Loach's films and British social realism. Mm. So I think taking on lots of different influences from different people, and I think originally it was more about directors and the arts, but I think at a certain point we started to become very interested in the producing because it became clear to us that nobody was going to hire us as directors to just come and direct their film. Um, from where, where we were at, we had to learn how to produce. And I think producing has become actually the most exciting thing of all because you make it happen. And if you learn how to produce, you can find the money and you can, you can make the dream become reality. And it's the most incredible thing. So I think, you know, big producer directors, I get very inspired by, um, as, as well, you know, so. That's really where all of it comes from, yeah. Do you think the time that you spent on corporate work, was that time well spent? Did you learn a lot of things that you could then take on into your feature film work? Or are the two completely separate disciplines? I think the, the thing that the, uh, the corporate work was useful for was, in one sense, it's completely useless in terms of learning how to produce a feature film um, because with corporate videos, you don't ever have to raise any money. You don't have to go and ask. I mean, you quote for a job, it's, but it's very different mindset. Um, you know, there might be some overlap in terms of the logistics arranging a, a day or two shoot. But, uh, you know, when you're arranging several weeks, you know, with 20 crew or whatever, it's a different scale. But um, I think the, the thing that was useful about the video production and particularly the school's work we did, was we, we made hundreds of short drama films with young people. And, you know, when you're trying to keep them well-behaved and make them concentrate and make decisions to make a film and you're having to kind of operate camera, sound and direct all at the same time and teach them, um, it was a fantastic film school for us because although, yes, they're not, you know, professional actors, you're still having to work out how to block out a scene, how to create drama, edit all those and put together loads and loads of stories so that was that was really helpful, and and of course then the, the corporate videos, working with crew, a DP and sound people, uh, makeup, learning how to communicate well with those people, um, doing a corporate video is it was really helpful. So you're not you're not going into the technical side then of a feature shoot and thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know how this set works. What's a clapperboard, and what are all these terms people are using? There is some some practice at that, yeah. Yeah, I think um, with you know corporate video production and, and work like that, you have to be organised, you have to be professional, you have to learn how to keep your cool and you need to learn how to make decisions very quickly at the drop of a hat. So I think there is some relevant training within that uh, world. Um, but I think, you know, uh, you know you, on the, the kind of corporate video production we were doing was, was, was fairly small level. So on a feature film, it's like that, but, you know, on a massive blow-up scale um, of pressure. Um, but I think, um, I don't regret spending all that time doing it, but I think that if, if your dream is to get out and produce and direct feature films, you have to, at some point, um, start making steps towards that. Um, because it, when you're doing corporate video production, we're living off that. The danger is that just becomes all you do. And you have this idea that one day you're going to do your own personal project, but that day will never come unless you make it happen. Um, so I think that that was one of the issues for us is I think we found that we, we, we just weren't making, making progress with our own filmmaking projects. So we had to start to put that on the back burner. And I think finally you have to prioritize what it is you want to be. And if you want to be a video producer, then, then great, be the video producer. But if you want to produce or direct feature films, then you have to start doing that. And, um, 
the short films aren't necessarily a great step towards that either. I think that's it, and that's the thing, and that's probably where I am in my career, is that I have a lot of corporate video work and not much time for anything else, so I'm not getting any younger, and I think it's probably about time that I started making those conscious decisions to actually engineer my way away from that world. I think now's a really good time to put in a quick break. After this short interval, we'll be back talking with Toby and Fionn about their feature film Playhouse, and I promise we'll talk exclusively about that and no more on corporate video production. We'll be back soon. Under the Lights Podcast. Hello, it's me again, back to tell you about our fantastic competition that we've got to win a personalised and signed copy of Doug Allen's book, Freeze Frame. All you have to do is answer the following question, which is, Doug Allen graduated from university in 1973 with a degree in which subject? That is, Doug Allen graduated from university in 1973 with a degree in which subject? Send your answers to hello at utlpod.com, short for Under the Lights Pod, and we'll draw a winner at random on our Facebook page at utlpod at the end of this series. Get your entries in now. Under the Lights Podcast. So welcome back. Toby and Fiona are still here, and we're going to get stuck into talking about their feature film, Playhouse, which is out, I believe, April time in the UK. So April, April the 16th is the VOD digital release date. And then I think we'll be looking at a DVD release in May. So we're not too far away now from our UK release. And I'm gutted. I can't wait to see it. I've only seen the trailer in the UK so far. Can you give the listeners an idea of what the film's about? It's about an irreverent um, horror playwright who moves to a Scottish castle to work on a new frightening theatre show. Um, but his daughter uncovers some ancient history in the walls and uh, soon comes back to to bite them both. Um, that's the kind of premise. So in a sense, we're drawing on things, you know, I guess ideas people will have seen before, like a film like The Shinings about a writer who moves to a kind of scary place and things go wrong, and uh, that's not so unusual. But for us, really, it was about the setting of the north of Scotland and the kind of the local history and the mythology around Scottish folklore that we were infusing, um, as well as the particular dynamic with the father and the, the daughter and the backstory of what led them there. Um, so it's kind of our own take on a, on a classic kind of genre tale. And uh, how much of this is a reflection of yourselves and your career at the moment? Obviously, the playwright moving away, yourselves moving into feature film, new territory. Yeah, I think, I think definitely the, there's a lot of ourselves in it. I think that's quite typical for somebody's first film is they're, they're working out a lot of their own, um, well, influences, but they're, they're also, you know, writing about things that they know about and can draw upon in their own life experience. I mean, our, you know, our dad was writing um, more like Christian related things rather than um, horror. Um, but nevertheless, there was a feeling of um, this mystery around our father um, in a, you know, in the room, different rooms in the castle with a typewriter going and wondering what's going on and the strangeness really of growing up in a place like that with all the cracked plaster and all the wild winds outside and the you know, total isolation. And um, our mother being there as well, she was there for a time and her struggle being an actress up there and not um, being able to find any work. So I, I think there was, there was definitely a lot of, um, lot of our upbringing in the Playhouse film. And uh, where did the initial inspiration come from? I think it really came from deciding that we wanted to make a film at our family home in the north of Scotland, which was this great tower house, 17th century tower house castle, 
by uh, right by the sea. And we thought, you know, this is amazing production value. We'd be foolish not to, to use this in a first feature film. So we set sort of backwards from that and, uh, and tried to work out a story that fitted the location, which obviously we knew really well. Um, and we went through sci-fi ideas, drama ideas, um, thrillers and so on. And uh, none of those seemed to work for some reason. They, we just couldn't make sense of this place that was half done up, half dilapidated, the wildness of it. Why would somebody move there? I mean, it's probably a big question. A lot of people might ask, why, why would you move there? It's quite an odd thing. So it was only once we distilled some of the interesting ideas we'd come up with in these other drafts, and we said, actually, there's a relationship here between a father and a daughter we quite like. Let's keep that, and then let's find a reason why he's there. And I think bringing the, your own family stuff into it, that's when it clicked for us, and we realised we understand the world of writers and actors and wandering around buildings creating stories, which is what he does in the film. Um, so we attached that to this relationship we liked and it made sense of the setting why a horror playwright would come to a place that needed a lot of renovation, had this kind of weird history around it. Um, and things started to, I guess, fall into place once those ingredients were there. And what was your schedule? How long did it take um, once you'd actually got the script locked to make the film? Uh, that's an interesting question. I, th- I think, um, I think the best part was, of a year. It, I was within, it was within a year of writing the script. Um, I th- I'd say from, writing the first draft to shooting was maybe about nine months. So pretty quick turnaround, actually. Um, I mean, we'd done some some work on the treatment before, so maybe it's fair to say it was more like a year. Um, But um, once we started writing it, we were fairly confident this was the one we wanted to make and we, we went out and, and started the process. I think the right, yeah, I think that we spent most of our time trying to get the right idea and it's the same with our second film we're developing now, we're spending a lot, a really long period of time trying to get that right. Um, it was actually the pre-production, the production was very quick and the post-production took quite a while but really yes, the writing is the laborious and very difficult stage. Good stuff. And we've obviously got a lot of listeners who are self-shooters that who are maybe sat on scripts that they're wanting to develop but have absolutely no idea of how to finance them. I mean, can you just explain how you went about raising the money for Playhouse? Yeah, I think the first thing we did is to come up with a number. You've got to have a number if you're going to go out and make a film. What's the budget that you're aiming for? Um, and to be realistic about that and um, make it a figure you think you can you can get. And um so we, we settled on a number and then we decided, okay, how much of that do we think we could put in through various means, crowdfunding and events and so on, and how much are we going to need to approach people for? Um, and also thinking about how much do we need to actually shoot it and then we'll worry about the rest later. That's, uh, that's potentially helps to make it less scary. So we decided then on a number that we thought, okay, let's go out for investment for this. That'll pay for just the production. We'll get the thing shot and worry about everything else later. Um, and I think that was probably the first step. Yeah, and I think that we also learned about um, film tax relief, you know, whereas, it, whereas if it qualifies as a British film um, and you spend most of your money and your shooting and your story is centred in the UK, you can get um, almost 20% back on what you spend. So there was some money that was going to come through that, which was great. Um, and um, I think that, you know, we were prepared to sort of sort of take risks in a sense and, and sort of partly fund it through private investors, um, beg, borrow and steal ourselves, even use credit cards if necessary. I'm not saying this is a great thing to do. I wouldn't recommend doing it, but we just, we were so 
like so driven to wanting to do this that we were we were kind of prepared to to do whatever it takes to to make it happen. So I think, yeah, um, I think you know, really doing a lot of training in terms of producing and and understanding how to go about raising money um, was very important. And looking, you know, well, they say your your network is your net worth. So we started to think, well, you know, how many people do we know who might be able to put in £2,000, for example? Do we know anybody who could put in £10,000? And we started to look, you know, draw charts and work these things out. And then we thought, yeah, it's reasonable to attempt to get the, the number that we've got in mind. And uh, amazingly, that did actually work. Um, I, th- I think one of the things that we were drawing on is that our mum, who's an actress, she has an enormous amount of what, you, what we would call social capital. Um, she doesn't have any money herself because she's a struggling actress, you know. Um, but she has a lot of friends who do have money, who've worked regular jobs their whole lives, you know, they're now in their 60s, they've maybe got money they don't know what to do with. And even just through being friends with her, we were able to approach them. And they because of their love for her and fondness of her, they said, yeah, we'll, we'll stick in some money for your boys. We, we know they've been banging on about that for the last five years. Let's do it. So I think it's thinking about where's your social capital. If you don't have a big network yourself, perhaps somebody you know does who can champion you and really get behind you. And for us, I think you know we do have a lot of gratitude to our, particularly our mum in this instance, for, for bringing in some interested people who were willing to take the risk on us, as well as some of our um, immediate family and friends. Yeah, and I think this is a thing, obviously, from me coming from a corporate background, I understand producing in a corporate setting, but I have absolutely no idea how to raise finance for a feature film and how to justify and present a return on investment for investors. Is that the sort of thing that your investors were looking at or were they more interested in just getting the film made? I think I think with our investors, they're what you call soft investors, really, because they're not... Um seasoned you know hardcore investors really looking to make a lot of money obviously they'd be pleased to recoup their money and a bit more but they're not entirely doing it for that reason um they're doing it probably because of love and respect for our family or it's just something fun to be involved with um so i think that in that sense it was quite a bit easier a little bit less nerve-wracking than us but i think um, one of the things we, we made sure that we, we've done with our investors, you put them in a good position, first position to recoup. So as soon as you start seeing any kind of net, you know, net profit returning into the film, they get paid out first plus 20%. And then only after that do you start to see um, money personally. Um, so I think you, you put it together in an, an attractive package uh, for the investors. And, um, a business plan that makes sense, that's well backed up as far as possible, get the numbers from comparison films and what they've done, um, and obviously a really, really great script and impress them with your DP and your actors and the people you've got on board. And, you know, as long as you're really organized and, you, you know, you look like you know what you're doing, they're not going to be too worried. I think the worst thing is to go out to investors when you're not ready, and that is a big mistake. Um, you're better not approaching them at all. Um, and I think that, so I think that was some of the learning and training that we did um, from talking with other producers and courses is that you have to get it all right on the page before you go out and you make those calls or you have those meetings with investors. But also, 
I think if you really believe, and you see this on Dragon's Den or whatever, if you're really organized, but you really believe in what you're doing, you're passionate, um, that attracts people and they get excited and they want to be part of that. So I think we knew we wanted to make this film. We were in love with the story. We had a you know clear vision for what this, what this was going to be. And I think when people spoke to us, they were attracted to that and they could see that and they were able to you know believe uh, that we could pull it off. Um, and more so we had a track record of having done some smaller films and we'd made hundreds of other videos who so we weren't completely coming from nowhere. Good stuff. And I, I know this is a fundamental question, but it's a really important question and it's one that a lot of people will have but are, are almost sort of ashamed to ask. But can you just explain how films actually make money and how you then present that to investors and how you demonstrate that they're going to get their money back? It, it's not as simple as just sell as many DVDs as possible. I, I think it's, um, on a first feature film, it's very difficult to go out with a lot of figures to investors, which is why it's helpful to think about them as soft investors that they're giving for a different reason. Um, because the film industry is very uh, lacking in transparency. It's very hard to get what you would call comparable figures. Um, and I would suggest, you know, it's helpful to talk to as many filmmakers you can who've made a film three years ago so that they've seen money back. It's no good talking to someone who's made a feature film last year because they will not have seen any money. Um, then there are two two options, really. One is to look at self-distribution, and you literally imagine the entire pipeline and say, okay, I stick it on Amazon myself, I pay this amount to promote it, Amazon take 50%, and I need to sell 15,000 downloads at £10 a piece, and I've got 100K back kind of thing. Um, you can do the maths, you know, do the conversion and see how many units do I need to ship and how can I drive traffic to my website or whatever. That's self-distribution, and I wouldn't advise that from what we've heard unless you had a huge following or it's a very niche subject with a very committed uh, following. Um, so then, the, then you're really looking at traditional distribution, which is where you get a sales agent and a distributor. And a lot of this is sort of shifting a bit as well now that, you know, we're in the digital world where you, you can approach a distributor yourself, possibly cut out a sales agent uh, sometimes, or you can put films on platforms yourself and everything's getting a bit hybridized. But we've gone in the traditional route and we got a sales agent and, um, and then they, they approach distributors and so on for us. Um, so th in terms of making money then, it's really up to the distributors getting it out there they recoup, they pay the sales agent, the sales agent takes commission, and then they pay you. And it's a very lengthy process. Um, and uh, that's, I guess that's something we weren't entirely prepared for, is how long it takes once you've completed the film to, to actually seeing the film even come out there. I think, yeah, I think, that, I think really, you know, um, one, one way you could make money from a film is obviously if you've got a buyout, and you'd, you'd be very lucky to get that, but... You know, some people make a film and they'll Netflix will just buy it for one significant sum and it'll be an exclusive and it's on there and you paid and that's it and you kind of know what you're getting. And if that's a really great sum, then you may take that and that's fantastic. But I think for a lot of people, it's recouping regularly small amounts over a period of time. And because there's endless shelf space on the platforms, it's not like, you know, Blockbuster back in the day, you know, it's only up for a few weeks and then it moves into the bargain bid and it's gone or whatever. That, you know, as long as people are still watching the film, you'll be getting a revenue stream continually um, paid out quarterly, 
you know, over a period of 15, 20 years. It depends how long you've licensed it to a certain platform. So I think there's lots and lots of ways that filmmakers can make revenue, even if it's just small streams of revenue. But if you have it on as, as many different platforms as you can, um, it, that will all continually be bringing in uh, money for you as long as people are watching watching the film. Um, the other way is, of course, you know, with the world sales, is that a sales agent will genuinely do this for you, traveling to film festivals around the world and, and lic- licensing your film uh, to different distributors for that territory. And in which case you get something called an MG, which is a minimum guarantee, and that's worth a certain amount of money. But that's pretty much the only money you're going to see for that territory. So we've already sold seven or eight countries. Um, but I think the ongoing revenue is very much based on the UK and the American VOD, America and Canada VOD market. Great. Thank you for that explanation. I, I know we promised that we'd talk exclusively about Playhouse and I hope we've not deviated too much, but just to get back on track, I just want to talk about how you went about locating your cast and crew on a film with this budget. Did you still have audition days? And obviously the location was already pre-decided and it was, it, it was your family's castle, but how did you locate the rest of the team and the rest of the crew? Yeah, I think um, there were a few givens, and I think anyone setting out to make their first feature will always have a few givens. Our, one of ours was the location. We knew where we wanted to shoot. We wrote the script around that, so we knew even what props were available to us, um, as well as the different settings, what the weather would be like, where the sun falls and so on. We, that was really helpful um, to know that from the start. The other thing we had was I think we had one or two actors in mind when we wrote the script as well. Um, and that was helpful uh, to really shape it around the actor, to have them on board fairly early on, um, at least their interest. Um, beyond that then, for the other actors, we we did a casting session in Sheffield for the lead girl. And I think we had six or seven girls travel from London, Edinburgh, Yorkshire, Manchester, and so on to come to, for that casting. And uh, yeah, we ended up casting the girl from that. And we also cast a minor part from a girl we saw um, during that session. And we, we weren't even auditioning for that role at that point. We just thought, hey, she would work in this this other role. So a little lesson for actors there, you know, go to a casting session for a film, even if you think you won't get the lead because they might think of you for something else. Um, yeah, well, what about crew? If you know? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, we use obviously spotlighting things are very useful, um, finding actors and hundreds of submissions a lot of work breaking the, down those lists. Um, but I think the crew, um, you know, some of its recommendations, I think people either you've worked with before or somebody you know who says, um, like, for example, Andy Toovey, our, our DOP, I think Toby had worked with him on something before. He got on really well. We liked his shooting style. We know we knew he'd done some features before, um, so he had some experience. But he... He then went and said, oh, have you got a composer yet? And we said, well, we're looking at a few people. And he recommended Dan Babeline. And um, we were very impressed with his music. And so I think quite a few people come on that way. And obviously looking at the local filmmaking forums, which here in Sheffield is the South Yorkshire Filmmakers Network, we were like, you know, no, well, let's put up on that. And, you know, we, we would sort of find a few runners, um, find somebody to do makeup. Um, a friend of ours did catering. Who's um, from? She's a Spanish, Scottish um, artist, and she loves cooking, catering for big groups, just just as a hobby. And so we said, you know, can you come and cook for the, you know, for the whole film shoot? Can you come, come and cook for twenty people for thirteen days, and we'll pay you some money to do that? And she said, 
because it's you guys, I'd love to. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, so I think that's, yeah, you assemble your crew, but I think, you know, we're very careful about um, getting people on board who we, you know, really got on well with um, and who were passionate about indie filmmaking. And we just didn't want one of those kind of um, film shoots where there's like ego and a lot of kind of, I don't know, nastiness and hierarchy. We were like, look, we're, we're, we're going to have a really great big family who are all supportive and we're all going to make the same film together. This is important to everybody. Everybody's valued. And so the whole ethos around how we worked um, was very important to us. And because of that, um, you get the best out of everybody. So you feed everybody well, you treat everybody well, you make sure everybody's on the same page as far as you can and something incredibly beautiful happens. And um, I think for many people, it was um, one of the greatest, you know, greatest moments they've had professionally and they were on an absolute high by the end of it so yeah so i think in answer to your question it's like casting and crewing up is a very important not just looking for the best person for the job but also somebody with a great attitude who's mm. lovely and get on with i just want to talk about the look of the film and obviously i've only got the trailer to go on so i've not seen the full film yet but i will be buying it when it comes out in april just talk to me how how you work with andy as well to obviously develop the look of the film i know this the the castle sort of dictates a lot of that and it's a it's a photographer's dream really working in that location um but yeah just just give us a little bit of an insight into how those conversations went and how you developed this 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 look for the film yeah i think um we we had a few film references in mind and i think one of them i remember was uh, prisoners the denny villeneuve film um which has this kind of very cool great gray blue washed out look um and a very um, restrained type of camera work as well um, and that was our one of our big references for Playhouse um, obviously we wanted to play into this sort of gothic as- aesthetic because there's there were so many candles in the film stone walls dark corridors that kind of thing so often when we were um, setting up a shot you know we would have that in mind for how, how to kind of mimic some of those that, those gothic angles and um, a lot of the time they came out spontaneously. You know, we didn't have a storyboard. We, we just, we had a shot list. Um, and Andy was brilliant at noticing things and suggesting things and improving on what we'd suggest. Um, and so the location kind of determined a lot of how we, we shot because the rooms were very large. We were able to get quite far back from things to give us some nice wide angles. The landscape's very flat, gave us some good wides. But then we also had some very tight corridors. Um, and... Um, Andy was very ambitious with, you know, just you know, wanting to, he wanted to do steady cam shots down the spiral staircase. Now, now that is actually technically very difficult to pull off and quite dangerous. And our first AD was, uh, it was his nightmare trying to manage that. And it took a lot of time, but you know, it, it added a lot. The fact we had a DP who was willing to just say, let's give it a go. Um, let's try and shoot the scene in one shot and see if it works. So, we had a lot of fun experimenting, actually, didn't we? He was very resourceful. I think, you know, we came up with a shot list. Um, but Andy, you know, would just say, um, hey, hey, guys, how about, you know, we throw a steady cam on this or, you know, we um, we take, you know, we, we do this handheld or whatever. And we'd be sort of, yeah, no, let's give that a try. And, um, you know, it seemed, it seemed a lot of the time that seemed to work, that approach. And, I mean, what was absolutely staggering with him was that how, how he could shoot quality but so fast. And to shoot a whole feature film in 13 days and we didn't miss a shot was just extraordinary. And I think this is one of the issues you've got with a lot of DPs is they're training on short films. So they have, they're given this a large amount of time 
maybe a week or something to film a 10 minute uh, short film. Okay. That is not going to work on a feature film. You've got to learn to work a lot quicker, a lot quicker if you want to do feature films. So I think, I think speed and quality working together. That's definitely Andy Toobie is, you know, dare I say a bit of a genius on that level. And he's already on his fifth feature film, you know? Um, and, and so that's, that was incredible, really. Um, his resourcefulness and his ability to work that fast. And he only had one camera system with him. It was also the gaffer as well. So. Wow, that that is impressive. I, j- I just wanted to ask you. Obviously, this is your first proper feature film. Um, what what challenges did you come up against? I think um, one of the challenges is when you're working on a you know very small budget with a limited um, crew. You, you have to do a lot of things yourself. So we were basically producers, directors, and we were we didn't have much time um, to get into our our directing necessarily because we were sort of one minute we were in charge of the whole management of the shoe and, and the huge and enormous Tesco shop came and we were like, well, where do we put all the milk and the biscuits and all that? And then, oh yeah, crap, we're directing a film. Yeah. And let's remind ourselves what we haven't read the screenplay in a while. You know, and <laughs> that kind of thing is a bit, um, that's very stressful. And I think as you get, you know, hopefully more money and more time as money buys you the time you can delegate those things. Uh, so I think definitely that kind of multi, you know, multitask management, um, is, is very challenging and um, you go a little bit crazy in the process. I think I think having a plan for how you're going to shoot something is really helpful on your first film. And then, um, you know, you'll get onto set and realise you don't have time to get all those setups. You know, you, you, you plan five setups, but you've got time for two or three. Knowing how, therefore, to change the blocking and the way the scene works um, – to be able to capture it in those three shots you've got time for is really key. So a lot of it's about being prepared um, to know who who's the main character in the scene, who, what's the point of the scene. Because if you don't know that, you don't really know where to put the camera, what to focus on, and you end up thinking, I need to shoot everything. I need to get all the angles because otherwise my editor will shout at me. But actually um, a good editor can work with, you know, the more limited stuff if you've shot the right stuff. So we, we had to, you know, cut, um, a few scenes in the weeks leading up to the shoot because we thought we don't have time and these aren't necessary. And we had to cut um, setups um, constantly throughout the shoot to, to be able to shoot um, the right amount of stuff. So definitely the time pressure, you, you don't have time to do endless takes. So eventually you do just have to say, well, I don't know if that is quite you know the best take we're going to get, but you know what? in the context of the whole film, it's not going to ruin the film. And I think it was good enough. And you have to be able to think like that to be able to move forward in the, in the first feature, because you know, you're not Stanley Kubrick. You don't have the luxury. Um, yeah. He didn't exactly have like 13 months to shoot the, the shining, uh, 13 <laughs> days. Um, so yeah. Um, I think tr- sometimes trusting other people's judgment and, you know, speaking to other an actor and saying, how did you feel about that? Or the DP and saying, how did that feel to you? And, if they say, no, I think it worked and, and your head's in a mess, then actually if you've got that relationship. You can say, okay, great. Let's, let's move on. Great. I think the challenges as well, and this is common, whatever budget level you're working at really is that people have their own personal issues during the shoot and um, you're working very long days and you know, people can feel unwell or um, accidents can happen. Self and uh, health and safety or, um, we had a few of these kind of issues happening on, on the shoot. You try and minimize them, but, you know, things do fortunately happen. We had a power cut. Um, we had somebody who needed to go to hospital a few, a few times, you know, a few times with um, panicked 
feelings. Um, and um, it is it is difficult. It's difficult territory to be in sometimes when you're shooting horror and uh, it can, me- can mess with your head, especially when we've said this in other interviews, especially when you're kind of sleeping and working in the same space. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> basically I think there's a lot, like anything could happen. I think you just, you know, you just have to, you know, hope for the best, but plan for the worst and try and minimize as many issues as you can. I mean, like James Cameron said about filmmaking, it is like, it's like going to war. It is going to war really, you know, in a sense. And um, final question on this really is: uh, what, what have you learned from this that you're obviously going to take into your next your next feature? Yeah, wow. Um, I think I think to have more time. I think we would love to have more time uh, and, a, and a one or two rehearsal days. Um, we planned to have a rehearsal day, but we ended up having to shoot on that day. And uh, I think um, yeah, on the next film, just having a few more days at least and some rehearsal time to play you know with actors in front of the camera and get a sense of their characters and how they how they move and how they react and so on um could be really helpful just it just means then you're not um not on that first day of critical getting getting the scenes that you need you're not uh, having to adjust the character too much or work out something that you then later realize you can't change and um so that that would certainly be be one thing um but it wasn't it wasn't a luxury we had so in a sense it's it's not a regret. It's just what we had to work with. But I think it means planning the next film. We, we've got to make sure there's enough money to cover some more time. Yeah. And I think, um, I think with the next, you know, if we can pull off another feature film, then um, what we'd like to think more clearly is what exactly, who is the audience and what are the expectations of that audience? Um, I think it's something we didn't necessarily think so much about with Playhouse. We're more just concentrated on just make the film and then, put it out, if we can get it out there, that's great, and see how it goes. And hopefully it, it goes down really well. I mean, we, we don't know, yeah, it's early days for us. But I think with the next one, we're like, you know, these are the, these are, this is the audience we're, we're, we're aiming to get the film to, and therefore let's really give them what they want. Hmm. Um, so I think getting it even more tightly in the genre box is kind of what we'd like to do next. And yes, absolutely, more time. But more time equals more money. <laughs> And we'll have to see about that. <laughs> you know, the rich people side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good stuff. Uh, my last question of the podcast then, this, this week's podcast, is um, what are your plans for the future? Obviously, you mentioned that you're in pre-production script writing maybe for, for your, ne- your next film. What, what are your plans even with Playhouse and for, for, um, for future productions as well? Yeah, I think... Um, you know, we're going to be stepping up the budget for the next film um, and we're aiming to get out this year and shoot that. Um, we've got ideas then for much bigger projects as well. So we will be certainly developing those later this year and into next year and just trying to move up the budgets and get better and better at what we do um, and also learn how to make things a bit faster as well. And hopefully the better we get at, at writing, the quicker we can um, turn these things around. Um, so definitely continuing in the vein of developing feature films and learning more about the business side of it as well so that we're not just making one film then there's a big delay um, where we don't know what to do and trying to get a project off the ground but a sense of maybe having several projects on at once and there's always something um, going on at different stages so that's kind of the way our thinking is going at the moment isn't it yeah I think developing a, a you know a strong brand for who we are as filmmakers and um, 
a slate of projects we love to get off the ground. Um, but also I think a sense of, um, you know, wanting to, to help other people as well in terms of sharing knowledge, sharing resources, uh, transparency in the industry. Like I say, it's very difficult to find out about how well films do, even how they make money and what they make. And just to see more access into the industry for, for people, it's such a very difficult thing to get into. And a lot of people are reliant on public money. Now, public money can only get a few people in at any given time. So I think this whole thing of the independent method, um, which we followed, which basically means that you don't wait for permission, you just go ahead and make your film. Um, I'd love to see more people jump on the bandwagon with this and, and, and just get their own films off the ground. So I think, you know, that's, that's we'd like to have more of these discussions um, with people and share knowledge and also learn from others who've gone much further than, further than we have. Great. And finally, before we say goodbye and thank you, um, we've got a couple of listeners in North America and obviously a big following in the UK as well. Where can people go and see Playhouse and how can they go about doing that? So right now in the US and Canada, people can watch Playhouse on Prime Video. Um, you can see it on iTunes, Google Play, Redbox, Fandango Now, Movie Spree, uh, and Voodoo. Um, and it might even be on YouTube Movies. I don't know. I lose track. Um, and then with the UK, it's going to be um, out in April, mid-April, on Video On Demand. And we don't know precisely what platforms, but we'd imagine things like Amazon, um, iTunes, Google Play, Virgin Store, Sky Store, things like that. Um, and then on DVD in May. Great. And I cannot wait to see it. Thank you so much for taking part in this week's podcast and wish you all the best with Playhouse and whatever the future holds for you as well. I'm sure whatever you're going to be working on, it'll be a massive success. Thanks once again to Toby and Fionn Watts for coming on the Under the Lights podcast this week. It's been amazing to talk to you. Had some really great insight into the, uh, the film industry and particularly on making low-budget features. As always, if you've enjoyed this week's podcast, please leave us a like, a comment, or even better, subscribe. Please help spread the word far and wide. We're gathering some great listener figures, and it'd be fantastic to keep that work going. All that's left to say is a massive thank you for listening. Join us next week for another Under the Lights podcast coming out Monday. A reminder that the draw for Doug Allen's competition will be on Friday the 26th of March, so make sure you've got your entries in, hello at utlpod.com. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Under the Lights Podcast.